Welcome to the Context Matters podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. We are starting this new year of 2023 purposefully looking at challenging biblical text often ignored in church sermons and then asking the question, what do we lose when we skip these books? Today, we have the opportunity to continue a conversation about what the modern church can learn from the book of Chronicles. And our returning guest is Dr. Carol Kaminsky. She is the professor of Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and the founder and director of Casket Empty. We concluded last week with Dr. Kaminsky giving us context for the book of Chronicles. It is one of the later books to be written of the Israelite scriptures, and it was written decades after the book of Kings. But it has a different focus, and she mentioned that Chronicles is about prayer, seeking the face of God, and humbling yourself. With that in mind, we started talking about the first nine chapters of the book that are almost pure genealogies. What do we have to learn from this long list of names? And why should we not skip these chapters and just get to the narrative? Dr. Kaminsky explains two reasons for these chapters. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. It starts with Adam. And you think, here we are in the final time of the Old Testament, and yet the Chronicle is going back to the genealogies of Adam And he's running through and he talks about Abraham and the table of nations. And he's running through that story. And the first point that he's doing and he's telling his audience is the plan and purposes of God haven't changed. His creation purpose will be fulfilled. And it's now being fulfilled in this small group of people in unlikely circumstances in this small, God's purpose hasn't changed and he is fulfilling it and they need to catch a vision of his creative purpose, his calling of Israel. So the genealogies help us theologically anchor the whole story of Israel and their present circumstances and it's reminding them that they are to be a blessing to the nations, even those problem nations to the north and to the south, God is, and God's calling hasn't changed. So that's one of the functions of those opening genealogies. And then the second part connected to the genealogies is in the history of Israel, you've had 200 years of a divided kingdom. From 930 to 722, you had the northern kingdom. And you might think, and sometimes we think, well, whatever happened to those tribes? Mm -hmm. Well, Chronicles tells us different times when northerners join the southern kingdom Mm. and those who go back from exile includes Ephraim and Manasseh. So that's why you have all those tribes listed in the genealogies because the Chronicle is saying through genealogies, through a different genre than narrative, he's saying God's plan for all Israel still stands, hasn't changed. Mm. So it's very inclusive. The language of all Israel is used throughout Chronicles because he's got a vision of the united people of God. Hmm. So it totally does away with the idea of the lost tribes, 
when people ask me about lost tribes, I'm like, well, Anna in the temple when Jesus was dedicated was from Asher. So <laughs> they're not all lost. <laughs> no, that's right. And and I do think we've we've somehow thought that somehow they've disappeared off the scene. Right. And there yeah. are times in the Chronicler we'll mention like during the time of Hezekiah, a whole group of northerners come and join for the Passover celebration. Josiah t- during that time, same thing. And then in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, when he describes the return from exile, unlike Nehemiah, he includes Ephraim and Manasseh. How did you go about spending time in the genealogies and coming up with application points for 40% of that material? Yeah, it was interesting because I first started with, when I started the commentary, I started working on the genealogies. And I don't mind genealogies myself because of my work in Genesis. But that, so I did a lot of work on them and then I worked through the whole commentary and I came back to the genealogies and I saw what I'd written and I was like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> this, oh, this really? won't work. Oh. Yeah, because I felt like it was too complicated. So I really had to think through um, how is this material going to be accessible to people? What are the entry points and really where is the level of application? And I think that there's a just a I'm just mentioned a couple of big picture ideas to help us get a handle on them. I've already mentioned one of them is the fact that you have all these different tribes, not just the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, I think presents a picture that God has a plan for a united people of God. And that would be something we could think of in our contemporary context. We think of the God's plan for his people has always been for one people of God not to be divided. And I would argue today that it doesn't matter whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, that we shouldn't be dividing over these things because unity is more important. So you have that. The second thing I would mention is I've already said about the creation purposes goes back to Adam. So it's, it's embedding them in the story of creation from the beginning and saying that God's purposes are being fulfilled through his people and they're to be a, a blessing to the nations. That's why you get the table of nations is there as well. But the other thing is there are another example would be the tribe of Judah and Levi are the two most important genealogies in the book. And now think of this, the tribe of Levi and Judah in this final time period of the Old Testament, there starts to be this hope and expectation that the Messianic king would be a priestly king. Zechariah sees a royal crown being put on the priest. There are hints of this already in Chronicles, but the focus on kings and the tribe of Levi remind us in this last time period that leadership belongs to these two tribes. And that's going to then anticipate that Jesus is going to be a priest king. Another thing, one other theme that runs through the genealogies, and this usually surprises people, is that the tribe of Judah is the most ethnically diverse out of all the genealogies in the Chronicles. Really? I hadn't realized. Different nations are being incorporated into it. And I think it is picking up the theology that the blessing to the nations is going to be fulfilled through Judah. So I agree with you as well that some of the names are also place names, and I think we have to become familiar with those. And I try and highlight those in the commentary because we have identity associated with location. Mm -hmm. And 
as soon as you say, oh, I live in this city or I live in this city, we immediately kind of give someone an identity. And I think they did that with Israel as well. And the genealogies move quickly between place names and people names because they're so closely linked and it's to do with identity and origin. As you listen to Dr. Kaminsky's explanations of the book, scattered throughout is her use of the term the chronicler. This is our shorthand way of saying the author of the text. To clarify the term a little, I asked if when we talk about the chronicler, are we talking about one person or a group of unknown people who we put under the umbrella title chronicler? Yeah, so in the past, scholars have thought that perhaps Ezra wrote chronicles Mm -hmm. and then Ezra, that's one, because he's, of course, in this time period. And he is also, um, you know, a Levite, so he'd be well-trained in the scriptures. And really more recently there are scholars like Sarah Japheth and Hugh Williamson who have really said, no, the theology in Ezra and Ezra Nehemiah is really different than Chronicles and we need to keep them as a separate author. So then the next question, well, who is the author? The author is unnamed. So we simply call him the Chronicler. And generally there's the view that we have one author writing it. And I will say to you, Cindy, that after I spent all these years working in Chronicles, I thought this person has devoted himself, absolutely devoted himself to the Scriptures. And I think that is what is remarkable when you consider the times that they were in, when it was a time when the glory days were over, you might think, why bother? Mm. And yet the chronicler is really understands the significance of the scriptures for the time that he's in. And in fact, we get the blessing of that now by reading it. So he's devoted to it. He's probably a Levite just because of the nature of the scribal traditions. But otherwise, we're left with the title, the chronicler. Right. If we are comparing, the, well, a portion of Samuel and Kings to Chronicles, can we tell that the chronicler is maybe copying word for word some of the earlier histories, or is the chronicler from beginning to end reshaping or retelling the entire Israelite history? Yeah, the, and I think it's really both because he's clearly meticulous when he's using his sources and there are places when it is word for word identical. And yet then there are other places where he's going to add another story. And scholars really will say that, you know, th- this is he's appealing to other traditions. It's not that he's somehow making something up, but he's appealing hmm. traditions. He cites different sources that we don't have. But he's bring and an example would be Jehoshaphat. There's much more information about Jehoshaphat in Chronicles than there is in Kings. And, of course, he's one of my favourite kings anyway. <laughs> so there are more stories about Jehoshaphat there. Another <laughs> example would be Manasseh. Yeah. Uh, Manasseh, again, it, it's, you know, the description of him worshipping idols and all the awful things that happen. But what does the chronicler do? The chronicler adds the time when he was brought to Babylon and in his distress he humbled himself and mm. prayed and sought the Lord, and then God answered his prayer. So there's a little story about repentance and prayer. Why? Because it fits also the Chronicles Mm. theology of prayer and repentance. It's central. It's fun when you compare the Hebrew text. You start to see these little comments. 
sometimes even in genealogies, 1 Chronicles 5 verse 20, there's this little thing. And they prayed to God and they trusted in God. And, and, you, and you're like, oh, there it is again. There's that little sermon embedded in the genealogy. Or the mm. prayer of Jabez is another one. Of course, we've become very popular. Right. It's a, and and I'm not sure that I agree with the full interpretation of that. I think the point of Jabez is simply to encourage us to pray in the difficult circumstances. Yeah. But but it's another example of prayer embedded in a genealogy because yeah. it's so important for the theology. So I'd love to know why is Jehoshaphat your favorite king? Or not maybe not favorite, but why does he grab your attention? Oh, you, so I mean, I love King David as well in the story, but Jehoshaphat is a great king. He starts off, you know, doing a great job and he's setting up the kingdom. And then he messes up terribly mm-hmm. when he enters in an alliance with a northern king. And oh, it's such a such a, an abysmal failure. And he even goes out to battle and he wears his royal garments. And the other king disguises himself. And then, of course, the enemy thinks he's the northern king. And it's just just a pitiful scene. But the, at the last moment, he cries out to God for help. I love that. Mm. And God answers him. And then you really see the transformation of this character because then when he has in Second Chronicles chapter 20, he has military coming against him. And what he does is fascinating because he has this enemy coming against him and instead of calling up his military who was stationed in Jerusalem, it says he set his face to seek the Lord. And so you really see what his priorities are at this time. He's become this godly leader through messing up and through learning through it. He's become this godly leader and he leads all Israel in prayer and worship. And so you have this wonderful story where he leads uh, the army out into battle, but they're, before the battle has been won, they're praising God and they've got their musical instruments and Levites. And it's just a, a great story of a reminder for us today mm. You know, that God really wants us to put our trust in him, not in for the Israelites, it was military, but we can have all kinds of things we put our trust in. And and God's wanting to draw us into these stories to remind us, no, our trust has got to be in God alone. Mm. So he's such a fun example. It's almost like we're getting the understanding of humility from a people group post being pummeled by Babylonians and taken over by the Persians a humility of even interpreting their own history is almost what I hear you say, which is a good reminder that lessons can be learned and behavior can be changed. If you think of it, uh, one of the themes that comes up after the exile, and I think exactly to your point, they've been in difficult circumstances. And what comes up after the exile is you have the language of fasting, like prayer and fasting becomes popular. And I think it's the crisis that actually is what happens with Manasseh in microcosm. Manasseh goes in, he's in distress, he's in Babylon. What does he do? He prays and he, and he humbles himself. And then when he goes back into Jerusalem, he says, now I know that there's a, a God. Now hmm. I know that the Lord is God. And I think that on a national scale is happening to the people as well. There was a study done during the pandemic on prayer And an organization looked at Google searches around the world during the pandemic, and they found that searches for prayer skyrocketed around the world during the pandemic. 
And what they even, it was fascinating, was studying Copenhagen, they found out that when they traced when a country had an outbreak of the pandemic, when it first hit a country, they traced the Google searches of prayer and they related it to when the outbreak happened. Mm. And it just reminds us that difficult circumstances can be used by God to call us to himself. And I think this is what's happening during this time in the history of Israel. I hope that after these conversations, you feel encouraged to go back and read the book. So I asked Dr. Kaminsky, if there is anyone out there wanting to look at the themes of the book to submit, to turn to God and to pray, where should people start? I'm usually a fan of starting at the beginning and reading all the way through, but those first nine chapters are a bit rough. So where are some good handholds for getting the flavor of what the chronicler is doing? Yeah, I think uh, the life of David, of course, is always important, but it spans a lot of chapters in Chronicles. I think the Second Chronicles chapter 7 Verse 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face. So I think that and Second Chronicles chapter 6, which is when Solomon dedicates the temple, and it's all about prayer. So I would probably almost start with those two chapters. I know that sounds terrible, leaving the genealogies aside, but you, if it really... <laughs> we so, all need help with genealogies. <laughs> we need but, your commentary to get there. That's right. But I would probably say starting with those six and seven and then look at the divided kingdom because that's when you're really getting that theology of prayer and worship. It's already there in the life of David, but it's in select chapters because he's also organizing the kingdom. So once you then come to Second Chronicles chapter 10, you get Rehoboam, and then you're going to see kings like Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah where this is really where the Chronicles theology comes alive. Mm. So I probably would start with some of those chapters. Should it bother anyone who happens to notice that the Chronicler focuses almost entirely on the Southern Kingdom of Judah and aside from the genealogies and some of the shared historical stories where both Israel and Judah are showing up in the same narrative, should it bother someone reading Chronicles when they see that that's what's happening? Or or is there another way for them to approach that discrepancy that is more helpful than just saying, oh, there's an agenda that is visible here? Yeah, I think the Chronicle is not trying to simply give another history, right? So he's interpreting history for his day. We already have First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And he clearly is valuing them because he's relying on them in his work. But he is now interpreting that history for his contemporary context, like mm. a preacher does, right? The, the abiding validity of the word of God, he goes back to Moses as well and constantly goes back to the Torah. But he is also interpreting it for his day. And when you think of the way they are in these last 100 years, they're not living in a divided kingdom. Yeah, and right. he, and right. and God's God's promise was for a united people. But after the restoration, it wouldn't be a northern kingdom and a separate southern kingdom. It, Prophet Ezekiel, you know, says uh, that there's going to be one people of God. So, in that sense, he's not excluding the northern kingdom because he's got them in the genealogies. He includes them at different times, 
but he is giving Judah and the returnees a vision for a united people of God. Mm. And I think that's an important um, movement forward in the narrative as it anticipates the work of Jesus. And then the other thing is he really is also focusing on worship, which Mm. is central. The tribe of Levi is central, praise, prayer, all those wonderful themes. So I think we want to let him speak in his own right um, Mm. and contribute He also, you know, sometimes will get criticism because he doesn't mention the idolatry of Solomon and he doesn't mention David's adultery with Bathsheba. And it's like, well, is he just trying to present an idealised picture? And the answer is I don't think so. I think he's not dwelling on that because he's trying to give people a vision of the kingdom of God Mm. and lift their eyes beyond their circumstances to see God is still at work. He's still bringing about his purposes and I think of the contemporary context today, and I think we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded that God is reigning on his throne. He is establishing his kingdom, and he can do it in days when the, it's all the glory days, and he can do it in days that don't look so promising. He's still at work. Yeah. And that's a reminder for us, I think, in our lives today. I've uh, read, uh, written, a, a not a commentary, I have done a commentary, but a Bible study as well on Chronicles called Cultivating Godliness. And I look at a lot of these themes, which I think we need today as well, Mm. um, themes like seeking the face of God, Mm. um, humbling oneself, prayer, generosity, uh, rejoicing. Just another example, there's more rejoicing in Chronicles than there is in Kings. Really? And here they are in circumstances where there's poverty and there's conflict and there's opposition but the Chronicles calling them back to rejoice in God's mm. presence, to rejoice in who he is, like Paul does in Philippians, right? Joy mm. in Philippians, even though he's in prison. You know, so that's another important lesson for us to rejoice in the circumstances that where we're in because God is at work. Thank you. I'm so glad that someone who started in the Pentateuch is embracing the end of the Bible. Uh, I like it for several reasons. One for like pulling together the genealogies from different ends of Israelite history and, and showing how they link, but just for then being a voice to this grand story of Bible, going back to casket empty, right? This mm-hmm. continual narrative and uh, the consistent character of God from beginning to modern day, which I think is, is really beautiful. So I'm so glad. Thank you for writing the Bible studies mm-hmm. for the church and the commentaries for the nerds. Uh, it's all <laughs> delightful. <laughs> and thank you for your time today too. I am excited to talk about Chronicles and I'm excited that you're excited about Chronicles and I just appreciate your time to be on the podcast today. Well, it's been a great blessing uh, talking with you today, Cindy, and I know we go back a good few years with our time at Gordon Conwell and it's been a blessing being part of the program. I hope you feel inspired to go back and read the book of Chronicles. This week, I am pleased to thank Natalie and Doug McGee and Lisa Nickel for making this conversation about Chronicles possible. They are part of my Patreon team who has stepped up and they contribute to making this a sustaining project in 2023. I cannot do this without my team. So thank you so much. 
I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits in the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is good to be with you, and I look forward to our conversation next week. Oh, I really look forward to this conversation. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. 